If you've been out of business for a while and need to understand etiquette in the workplace, or you want to know how to better manage your time, then you need business etiquette. You're on a lunch date with a customer and you want to feel confident about dining etiquette and introducing your clients correctly to others. You also need business etiquette. This course also teaches you how to public speak, how to set your lifetime and daily goals, If you're in sales, this course and class is a must. We sometimes believe times have changed to casual, but casual does not mean non-professional. Our Champion School of Real Estate Etiquette course fills up quickly for people from all walks of life. The loud voices of body language, the slam dunk preparation for the job interview, the powerful first impressions you want to make with your clients, All of these are part of this must-take two-day course. It's through Champion School of Real Estate's virtual campus, so you can enjoy the course from home. The best $145 you can spend to get you prepared for your new career. Santa Maria, CEO, Champion School of Real Estate, the nation's leader in real estate education. Our goal is to jumpstart your career, boost your career to the next level, give you insight into what a career as an entrepreneur in real estate is all about. Real estate is the career of top producers, and we are always finding the creme de la creme or best in the business who openly share their steps to success. And they are always champions. I just want to tell you, I've personally used Jasmine on my personal property to give uh, an appraisal prior to listing it because I knew that she would come forward with the absolute value that uh, I could look forward to getting an offer on. And as well, she is one of our lead appraiser instructors that we snagged in. She's contract because her full-time job is being a general certified appraiser. And she is out there in the residential world all day long. So that being said, Jasmine, I'm just going to throw this out from the get-go. Okay. How many years have you been doing appraisal, and why did you want to be an appraiser? Well, I started appraising in the 70s, about 1977, prior to licensing. And the way I got into the industry is that my father had a large sales staff, and he did not want my brother and I to be in competition with the sales staff. He didn't want to hear any complaints about nepotism. So rather than sell... We sold for the two years um, to get our broker's license, and that exposed you to the whole arena of sales so that you understood financing, you understood buyers and sellers and uh, the market. And then after the two years were up, or a little bit past that, 
Uh, then I went back and got my broker's license. And when I got my broker's license, then I began to appraise. And so we began to do work for um, VA and FHA and um, City of Houston. So let me interrupt just one second, because I want to make sure our brand new people in the classroom hear this answer. You're a broker. You sell your own property. Are you going to be able to appraise it? Oh, no. no. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> we don't uh, appraise what we sell, and we don't sell what we appraise. There you go. Yes. yes, yes. And why is that? Well, because you want to be an independent voice. Yes. We're an independent voice. And so you would, um, there would be some conflict of interest if you appraise what you use. Exactly. Right. And we like to talk about that just very simplistically for those of you that are licensed already. Uh, you know this, but we remind all of our new people that you could be an inspector and also have a real estate license, but you're not going to inspect your own property. Uh, that would be a conflict of interest. Loan officer, real estate agent, the same thing. Yes, you can have multiple licenses. But for goodness sake, don't use all of them at the same time. Pick your specialty so you don't have a compromise in your integrity or your ethics as far that's as exactly that's concerned. Right. That's exactly right. So talking about just the transaction from the get-go. I'm an agent and I'm conversing with my buyer on the process. And I tell them... When you find the house you want to buy, you will need to be prepared to talk to the loan officer and you will need be you will need to be prepared to pay for an appraisal. So tell me if you would what your conversation would be with that buyer and how the process works on your side as the appraiser. Who chooses you the appraiser? Who do you report to? Who is your fiduciary relationship with all of that? Well, the lender hires the appraiser. And we actually do work for him because the lender wants to be protected. In case the buyer does not pay, the lender will want to come back and um, take the property and get his money back. So we protect him. And that's who hires us. They hire us either directly or they use uh, appraisal management companies to hire the appraiser so that there is some um, distance as it would between the seller, the agent, and the appraiser. Now, when you talk about appraisal management company, sometimes that's a little gray area. How does that work, appraisal management company? The appraisal management company is to be a middle person between the appraiser and the lender so that the lender doesn't or there's no pressure from the lender onto the appraiser to give him the value that he wants. We want to make so many deals and so we want the appraiser just to uh, give us a number so that we can close our deals. And appraisers, or what we found historically, is that appraisers trying to get business would please the lender so that they could continually get appraisals and appraisal assignments. And so the appraisal management company is set up there to be that distance. So the management company is going to review and make sure that the appraiser is doing his work correctly and he is not um, 
trying to appeal to the lender to get a series of work. So that's the, the, the bridge there to make sure that sort the consumer like gets an arm's length distance. separation. Yes. So we understand that the appraiser works with the lender, but at the same time, we know that the real estate agent can be very helpful in helping the appraiser do their job and still keep an arm's length. So what are real estate agents able to do and keep everybody happy? Well, let's start at the beginning. Let's start with the seller. The listing agent is going to um, list the property with the seller. In some instances, the market is so complicated or there are not many sales in the area. And what the agent can do is get a pre-appraisal. And so he can go in and hire, have the seller hire an appraiser and the appraiser can look at the market and tell them what the pitfalls would be in this particular market mm -hmm. and give them an idea of what the property could be priced at um, to sell because the agents really want to sell the listing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the goal. That, so they will come in and do that pre-appraisal and then the, the seller can be very realistic about his property. Because we have to remember, sellers live there for a long time. They love their house. And they think the things that they have put in the house or the things that they enjoyed in the house will be the things that other people enjoy or the amenities that other people enjoy. That may not be true. Mm -hmm. Then the other thing the um, agent can do is to make a list of uh, changes and uh, renovations and remodeling projects that the seller has done on the house in the last 10 to 15 years so that um, they can have that list ready for the appraiser and say, well, we put in new floors or we put in new lighting or uh, summer kitchen and those additions. Because when we come to the house, we see the summer kitchen there. It takes a real trained eye to see whether that summer kitchen was put in last year or okay. six years ago. So if you tell us that it was put in and when it was put in, it then helps that, everybody. it helps everybody. Okay. So how do you feel about the agent giving you comparable property sales, CMAs, that uh, they put together on properties that sold within, we like to say, the last six months? And or even, I mean, as soon as possible, close okay. to the date that this particular buyer wants to close, and having those available in the house uh, for you to pick up or giving them to you in advance. How do you feel about that? I personally like it because it gives me an idea of how the agent assigned this list price to the property. So it works well for me. But I will tell you that not all appraisers appreciate that. Okay. So you can leave it and it's good to leave it because the appraiser can review it and see um, what sales that you considered when you listed the property, but don't be offended if the appraiser just leaves it because the appraiser still wants to be independent mm -hmm. and they don't want um, so. somebody to feel that they have been swayed one way or another by the agents. So it's, it's a two thought process in the appraisal industry. Some appraisers appreciate it. They review it. They still do their own work. Right. Some don't want to be influenced by it, and so they leave it so that they keep that independence. Mm -hmm. So it will vary from appraiser to appraiser, mm -hmm. and uh, that's the reality of that. So for those of you sitting 
in class right now or at your home office, the three things that she mentioned was a pre-appraisal and then make a list of any additions to the house that the appraiser may not be aware of, especially as Jasmine said, if there's been an addition like a summer kitchen or a brand new roof, the date that these new things were done to the property. And that's gonna help a lot. You did your wonderful CMAs, we hope and believe, when you, the listing agent, put the house on the market. And uh, the CMA with the subject property compared to other recently sold properties, you might tell the appraiser that they're available for them if they want to use them. And often agents just put them in the house in a folder and then it's up to you if you want to see how close or far away we are in that agreement. But I know most agents do that because it seems to be that most appraisers like that or they will even ask for it. Yes, so, many of them do. So. Yeah. So moving into the house and adding different features to it, just recently I saw an email that um, I, I feel as though you would be the expert to answer this question. And the agent was fairly new and she was saying to me, the seller was so very disappointed that the brand new beautiful pool that they put in with the beautiful spa and the fountain, that they were not going to be able to get all of their money back on putting that in. And uh, she asked me what the rule of thumb was. So I invited her to join us today. I know she's listening. <laughs> And I said, let's have our general certified appraiser answer that. What can the seller expect with adding a pool to the property they purchased years back? Well, one of the things that we want to say, it is your house. So you certainly want to put in any amenities in your house that you enjoy. But you need to know that cost and value are two different things. So you can spend $40,000 to put in a brand new pool and the spa and all of those wonderful things. But when you get ready to sell, the appraiser looks at market value. So then we have to consider what other buyers would pay for that property. And it's not a new pool when they get ready to buy it. So there's some discount because of depreciation. There's some discount because not everybody wants a pool or desires a pool as much as you did. So then we go in and we have to look at what the market says about that pool. And so it does not always return uh, an increase in value. And unfortunately, you do need to know that sometimes the things that you add to your house as a pool may even be a negative. We have to remember that in some subdivisions, you already have a community pool. So your house is then paying for two pools. So it's a burden of ownership. And then the buyer coming in or the potential buyer may not even uh, value that pool at all because they, they've got I to pay for two. I hope so much that our listeners today will go to YouTube. By the end of the day today, we'll have our uh, interview on YouTube. And I hope you all replay that because the words that came out of Jasmine's mouth are wonderful words to pair it to the seller when you're sitting down at the listing appointment. 
And they are saying, and look, we put in this wonderful, great, you know, whatever, $80,000 uh, pool feature and, and everything that makes it look so awesome. And obviously the answer is that's fantastic. It makes your house so beautiful and you've enjoyed it. And perhaps for a buyer that's focused on this neighborhood, that might make the difference between house A and your house, Mr. Seller, if they want the pool. But at the same time, having that conversation that Jasmine just had about, yeah, we already have a community pool. Yeah. It just allows the seller to have some of that conversation in their brain so when you, the agent, are ready to negotiate and maybe that comes up with your seller that, wait, we spent $80,000 already, they've had the conversation that it may not be the winning reason or they may not get all their money back. That's correct. And, the, and again, the, the pool depreciates over time. So you spent $80,000 10 years ago, but that pool depreciates. So you can't get your $80,000 back. Oh, that's, that's right. That's, it is a depreciating. It's a depreciating factor. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is we need to know that in some neighborhoods, pools are real desirable. Exactly. And folks will pay extra and for it. And they expect it. And they expect it in certain neighborhoods. But there are some neighborhoods mm -hmm. where you have to consider the buyer's cost of ownership. He has to pay extra taxes. He has to have uh, additional water bill. He'll have additional electric bills. Um, his insurance will go up, and the burden of owning that pool may be prohibitive in some markets. So we can't always say that the pool or those kinds of amenities are going to add or going to add even near what you paid for. Well, then let's talk about value for a minute. And I hope our students have paper and pen out right now or iPad out and take some notes on this. Um you are an agent, you are getting ready to list a property, you want to place the correct listing price on the property. What are the different areas that an agent should consider as they are deciding at what list price should I suggest to the seller they list their house? The first thing I want to say is be very realistic. I know everybody is in competition trying to get that listing. Mm -hmm. But the seller needs to know that his house is going to be in competition with other houses in the neighborhood. So you need to look at what is already on the market, and you certainly need to look at what has sold in the last six months. One of the biggest mistakes and one of the uh, biggest problems that separate agents from appraisers' numbers is that price per square foot. We oh, do we talk about that. For we do teach the, the price per mm -hmm. square foot where people take the mm -hmm. sales price. The agent will take the sales price divided by the square footage of the house and come up with the price per square foot. The problem gets to be if you do that for a 1,700 square foot house and you come up with a big number, you know, it may come up to 207 mm -hmm. uh, per square foot, and then you apply that 207 to a 2,300 square foot house, then it exacerbates the price. And that's, the people are not going to pay that difference. It's not apples to apples. It's not apples to apples. 
when what you need to do is make the comparison between houses that are very close in square footage. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're going to use the price per square foot, it's more reflected if you're using three houses that are about 2,300 square feet or three houses that are about 17, 17, 1,800 square feet. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's less than 100, 150 square feet different, it works. The price per square foot works. But the bigger problem is we'll take a smaller house Price per square foot will give us a big number, and then we apply it to a big house, and that puts the price over. Excellent point, because agents sell in all different neighborhood price ranges. So you may be in Sugarland in the upper uh, square footages of 5,000 square feet, but then the next day you may be in another neighborhood in Sugarland, and it may be 2,300 square feet. So make sure you're saying that it's apples to apples per the neighborhood if you're going to use square footage. That's correct. And you know, it seems like a lot of buyers want to use square footage, square footage, square footage. And they tend to sometimes not listen to the agent so much when they say, well, we do comparable property sales. And yes, square footage is an indicator but in residential, not so much as what the market sold for. That's correct. That's correct. List price to sales price is such a great percentage that buyers and sellers, especially sellers, love to see. Um, and, and I say that because a lot of agents use that in their marketing material. It's their history showing of the properties they've listed, what the ending sale price was. So if sale to list is 98%, it says, wow, they're doing a pretty good job knowing how to list that property. So if you are a buyer, for example, you might want to go ahead and be sure and make your, um, make your questions to the agent you're going to work with, you know, what is your sale to list percentage? But especially as an agent in the business, when you start having a track record and you're trying to market yourself, be sure and advertise your sale to list percentage, which says, hey, I'm pretty darn good at doing this. I've got it down pretty well. Yeah. Let's talk about some issues with property. Uh, the, the real situations that are out there. So you are that agent that is at 98% sale to list ratio. You do a darn good job uh, putting your CMA package together, your comparative market analysis. And the property is listed at the looks to be perfect price. And in fact, you get an offer on it, let's say within seven, nine, 10 days. And uh, the offer is right at list price. But the buyer, of course, ends up paying for the appraisal. And now the property appraises, let's say $20,000 less than what it sold for. And this is a really typical situation but not so much in today's world because we have a great market. But it does happen, certainly, on a daily basis. So, Jasmine, what are the options or alternatives for the buyer 
for the agent, for the seller. It just didn't appraise. Just didn't appraise. Well, a couple of things can happen. The buyer can, as always, pay more. The seller can reduce his price. Or the seller can appeal the appraisal. The seller says, well, listen, I, I think the price is right. I think the contract is right. The buyer wants to pay. Um, there were other people who were interested in the property at the list price. So I don't think that we're wrong. So we want to appeal the okay, appraisal. Okay, step back just a minute. Because with our brand new people here, when you say the buyer can pay more, what do you mean by that? The buyer can pay cash over uh, what the, the lender, yeah, what the the lender will lend. Right, the appraisal. Right, um, and sometimes that happens. It does, and and it happens for a lot of reasons. Sometimes the buyer wants that property because it's close to his mother-in-law. And, or it, it's close to work, it's close Good. to them. So he can pay that. If he's got the cash money and the neighborhood um, means that much to him or the house means that much to him, mm-hmm. he can pay over the um, the appraisal value. And the appraiser just supports that. Exactly. Yeah. Or the seller can drop his price. The seller can say, oh, I'll, I'll take a little less. Or, or if he needs to sell. It's time to sell. I need to go. And so, I'll and even that. that combination, the seller drops it a little bit and the buyer comes up with a little more cash. Whatever makes the lender happy in that situation. That's correct. That's correct. So, those things. Now, what happen. about going back? The agent goes back to the lender and says, I have all this evidence that it really should have appraised for more. We know the buyer would have to pay for a new appraisal. How often do you see the lender saying, okay, we will we'll do another appraisal? Not as often. Most times, if there is a mistake, let's go back to the appeal process. Because perhaps there's something that the appraiser missed. Perhaps he, he did make a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know. I know that's shocking to many of yeah. <laughs> I know that's shocking to people. The appraiser made a mistake. I, Yes, it can happen. So you can go in and say, listen, appraiser, let me tell you some things that you missed. Again, that's why I say it's better to prepare in the beginning. So if you give us the information about the additions and uh, new things that are coming in for the Homeowners Association or some uh, amenities that are coming in the community, if you know those things and you tell the appraiser, up front, the appraiser can look at it and see if it's going to have an impact on, on value. If we have that up front, it, it may make a difference. But perhaps the appraiser missed it. Then you can come back and, and say, listen, we put this was added um, last year or this was added two years ago and the other properties don't have it. Or this property is in this uh, school district and you missed it and you put it in the wrong other school district. And that does not have the same appeal. Those kinds of things can be brought to the attention of the lender. The lender brings that to the attention of the appraiser. The appraiser can review his uh, process and see if there's something that needs to be corrected. Okay, now, if that does not work, Mm -hmm. if that does not work, the appraiser says, well, I still think that what I did was good and and I'm not going to change. Then um, if the buyer wants to, the buyer can um, 
ask the lender to do a second appraisal. And, and a second appraisal can be ordered. Now, many times that second appraiser, the appraisal is not going to be paid for by the buyer. And we do know that all things are negotiate, uh, negotiable. Um, sometimes when they have to have that second appraisal done, I see that the seller and the buyer may come together to share that cost. Now, sometimes the buyer has the money and he can do it again, but sometimes the seller says, option. I'm fighting for my value. And so they may pay for it. And then sometimes the two of them come together to pay for that second appraisal if it is warranted. Now, remember, the lender wants to be in the best position. So they have to be on board, too, oh, that the second appraisal is going to be beneficial to them because they don't want to be overextended because, unfortunately, they're the one that's giving all the money, basically, yes. to buy the house. So they need to be in a good position with their investment. That's right. So um, if we move into Houston, Texas right now, and we move into the aftermath of horrible Hurricane Harvey, and we move into the fact, those of you living outside of Houston and our other wonderful metros around the state, just driving into work every day, I always pass neighborhoods that are still... Trying to recover. Trying to recover. Still empty homes and people in the remodel uh, state of having to have their home brought back to the status or the state where they can live in it. So what has that done to appraisers who are going to these houses when they sell? And in the past, the neighborhood sold beautifully or of market value. But now, because of Harvey, they had whatever, five, six, eight feet of water. How does the appraiser deal with those properties? Or how are you dealing with them? Well, I want to send a big thank you out for those who are working in this market now. Because we love it when we read in MLS, house did not flood. Because then you tell us, they tell the appraiser, listen, this neighborhood did flood, but this house or this section of the house, this section of the neighborhood did not flood. That's good information for appraisers. Um, otherwise, then we have to do quite a bit of research to find out that this house flood. And so we rely on you all telling us about flooded neighborhoods. So we, we appreciate um, the listing agent putting that in MLS and making that available on your listings. So big thanks to you. That's uh, appraisers love that. The other thing that the appraiser has to do is to look and see what impact Harvey had on communities. There are some communities where the whole neighborhood flooded, the whole subdivision flooded. We know that and we know the impact of those communities. But there are some communities where two blocks flooded and the rest of the neighborhood did fine or the neighborhood um, had some flooding in the back and not in the front. And so we will have to compare to see how the houses that flooded are doing on the market and how the market, how the neighborhood is doing where no flooding occurred. Have we had enough time to see that yet? Not yet. We see some. There's some neighborhoods where the demand was so great mm -hmm. before Harvey that water will not. Um, wash away that demand. 
And so there's still neighborhoods where people are coming in and saying, I still want to live in this neighborhood because it's a great neighborhood and we couldn't have gotten in here if the, the values hadn't dipped a little bit. I'm looking at one of our questions um, that we do have on our other screen uh, through chat. And one of the questions that came up is, my house is in a neighborhood that flooded, but my seller's house did not flood, but the neighborhood, a lot, the majority of the neighborhood homes did flood. And this person would like to know, how do you regard that house that is on the market for sale? The one that didn't flood, but in the neighborhood that did. It did. Well, the first thing we look at, and we hope that there's some other houses that sold in that neighborhood. If not, remember, we still can use competing neighborhoods. So there are some other neighborhoods that did have sales in it. We go into those neighborhoods and we see the price differential between houses that did flood and houses that didn't flood. And so you do that repeatedly so that you come up with a percentage of market difference that buyers will make. And then you come to your neighborhood and apply it. Okay. So. So you're working with a percentage. Yes. Okay. All right. I know that has hit so many homeowners. <laughs> so again, again, talking about Houston in this area for just a minute, property taxes. I know that so many homeowners are saying, well, hold the boat now. I got hurt over here by Harvey. My neighborhood flooded. But my property tax stayed the same as it did prior to the flood. So what do you think? And I know this is just your opinion because you're not part of uh, the appraisal district. But what would you tell homeowners about property tax reductions or deductions? The appraisal district looks at your property as of January 1. So if January 1, your house was in disrepair, you certainly needed to let them know that my house has been flooded or uh, it's been impacted in, because of Harvey. And as of January 1, they would make a note of, of price reductions. And you have from January 1 till today, this year, um, May right. 15th, in order to appeal your value that you received. Uh, normally, and there's that little caveat, or 30 days from the time you got your letter. That's right. On your property tax estimates, so you may have you a little can time. Prove when you got that letter, and it is whichever is the later. But it seems like it would be a tough thing to prove. But with the new law, as you mentioned, it used to be the end of May. Now it's today, May 15. May 15. Or the 30 days, so go ahead. So you go in and you appeal and you say, listen, my house is not the same house as it was pre-Harvey. This is post-Harvey. And let me, and, and, and before you start doing your repairs, you should take pictures. And so you have pictures of the water stains and the water uh, damage to the house uh, prior to doing the repairs. So January 1, it was not repaired. So... Um, you have that that you can take to the appraisal district for uh, appeal and um, go in with your pictures to show them. And they will, they've been pretty good at doing reductions on that. Um, the other thing is um, look at what's going on in your neighborhood. Again, if you are the only house 
that didn't flood in your neighborhood and the other houses flood, then again, you go in and say, listen, the house is in pretty good shape, but I want you to see what has happened around me. And I could not sell my house or the market value that you have on it would not um, be realistic in a neighborhood where so many houses are impacted because uh, there is market perception. Exactly. So your house didn't flood, but if we have market perception that this subdivision... Exactly, and that's what the news media really hurts. So <laughs> the perception. Have you ever wondered what a career in real estate is all about? My 30 Days to Success workbook will teach you what an agent should do from their first day in business through their first 30 days. Everything from finding clients to setting up appointments to deciding what office to join and which type of real estate is good for you, be it residential or be it commercial. 30 Days to Success is a training manual for new people. If you are needing additional training in real estate sales, if your company training program is maybe needing improvement, purchase 30 Days to Success for $79, which includes the link to online training as well as the comprehensive 30 Days to Success workbook. asking the question on chat so she put her house on the market for the sellers the sellers got multiple offers and uh, the seller then says to the agent I have three four offers on the property I think you listed the property for too little money <laughs> and uh, question being when you are in an aggressive seller's market that we have right now, do you have words of wisdom for the listing agent in the conversation with the seller that, yes, there may be multiple offers, however, may not still appraise at that high auction number? Right. Mm -hmm. It may not because until we get um, a history at that higher number, the appraiser's always has to look at history. We've got to look at what sellers have already gotten in the, in the market in the last six months. So if that's been at um, 300000 and the bidding gets to going over 300000 the appraiser has to be able to support 325, 335. Exactly. And if we can't support it, it's still market. It's still market. Yeah. So on the front end, especially our new people listening, that's one of the conversations you want to have with your sellers is please don't come back to me once we get an offer and it's above list price and say you didn't do your job. No, it is supply and demand. And yet, Mr. And Mrs. Seller, that house still has to appraise. So, yes, you're in great shape with multiple offers and we teach you how to work multiple offers in our contracts class. But at the same time, it must still appraise. So now I have a great case study I want to give you. Okay. Happened just recently. 
and uh, from an experienced agent, one of those nightmares. So every step of the way, Jasmine, I want you, when I finish giving you the scenario, tell us what might have happened that would have made it better. <laughs> <laughs> what went wrong? <laughs> what went wrong? And it's such a true real-life situation that will help everybody. Buyer moves into their wonderful new neighborhood. They purchase their home. And one of the wonderful things they loved about the home was that the seller had converted the garage into a nice game room. Now, as you and I both know, most buyers don't like that. They want their garage. This buyer happened to buy it because it was a wonderful, well-done, converted garage. Some aren't so well done. So they are now in the house for three weeks. They get a letter from the HOA saying that the seller had violated the deed restrictions. In fact, they show letters they have sent to the seller saying, put the house back in its prior condition with the garage. Seller totally paid no attention to it. So now new buyer gets the letter saying the deed restriction has been violated. You cannot have a converted garage in this neighborhood. So question, many questions. Who's liable, seller or buyer? How could it have been prevented? And what is your opinion as an appraiser on converted anything? Um, converted anything. <laughs> we'll talk about DIY in just a minute for sure. But... The, um, who's liable? Unfortunately, the buyer has gotten a copy of the deed restrictions and the agent should have gone over that when you buy in a neighborhood and you have deed restrictions. Um, the buyer's agent really ought to have some conversation about what you can and cannot do in this neighborhood. So a lot of restrictions in those CCNRs that are in your deed restrictions, you know, whether you convert a garage or whether you can have a Doberman pension in that neighborhood. There are lots of things So a listing have. agent should have questioned the seller when they saw the house and said, hmm, yeah, you've so, got a converted garage here. So, But our buyer's already in the house. So, oh, yeah. So we want to make sure that the buyer's agent knows that, that he should do some research also. Perfect. Okay. Seller and the seller's agent. When you list a property and they have been conversions and additions on the house, there are a couple of questions that you need to ask. Was it permitted? Did you go to the homeowners association? Does your homeowners association say when you do major repairs to your house, you need to run it by the homeowners association's um, planning and building committee? Many associations have a, a standing committee that uh, approves color and paint and additions to houses. Um, and so you, you may need to go through that committee before you um, make those capital investments in your property. So listing agents, you need to have that conversation. And again, the and I want to say this about the Homeowners Association. The Homeowners Association's um, deed restrictions about those additions are to protect the whole community because... Sometimes when the house is built, the electrical, the plumbing that goes into the garage is not as um, detailed or it's not as strong to be living space. Could even be a honeydew uh, yeah, <laughs> transformation from 
the patio to a, a garage yes. to a garage. I mean, the patio to like a garden room or something like that. And the weekend warrior does it himself. That is true. So those kinds of things, the homeowners association wants to make sure that you don't do anything that would cause a fire or would exactly. be uh, dangerous to you, the residents, and to the residents that live around you. So making the making you come or asking you to come before them to um, get approval or to get permits is for the good of the greater community. So I want to support the homeowners association in, in their charge to protect. The other thing is when your buyer moves in, the buyer wants to uh, or is mandated to follow the homeowners association's um, requirements. So as soon as you can get a copy of that uh, homeowners association document and share it with the seller to make sure that they're in compliance and to share it with the buyer and the buyer's agent, then we're going to eliminate those kinds of problems. Now, what about the appraiser? The appraiser goes out, looks at the property because they have to appraise before we close. An appraiser didn't say anything. Are there any repercussions on that side? Um, it is. The appraiser um, looks and should be uh, in tune with the homeowners associations and the, the restrictions in that neighborhood. And so um, typically, if the, and we know, we can pretty much tell when it's done and it's not in compliance because the garage door is still there. The conversion is there and the garage door, it still looks like a garage from the outside. That's a, a red um, flare for the appraiser. Mm -hmm. So why didn't you make it blend into the front? Why didn't you change the architectural design of it? Oh, you didn't because you couldn't. You you, you had to exactly. make it look that way. So the appraiser may not even um, value the uh, conversion. We're going to treat that as a garage that needs to be converted back. It's actually a negative. It's a negative. Mm -hmm. So we Take the garage, we make it a garage, and then we figure in the cost of converging it back to a garage. This is such good conversation for all of our potential agents because you will have that buyer that says to you, Oh, this is great. It's a three car garage. We only need a two, two car. <laughs> We're going to take that other garage and turn it into something else. Red flag. You need to make sure, buyer's agent, as you said, that it would be allowable by the deed restrictions. And then as well, it's a good conversation to have with the buyer to say, that really is something you need to decide if you want for your own family to enjoy. Because most buyers, when you go to sell now, most buyers are going to want it to be a three-car garage. So you'll probably have to put it back again. So every step of the way, but ultimately, ultimately, I wanted to end that discussion with seller in the house. He violated the deed restriction. The listing agent should have apprised him or her of that. And then along comes buyer's agent and should have, could have question the conversion, but uh, ultimately we know it has to be fixed to keep the HOA happy, 
we can call it HOA. There are also townships that have the same, same restrictions. So that is a certainly a real-world scenario. And in addition to that, Rita, we, when you are listing the property, agents, when you're listing the property, and the seller said that they did work on the house themselves, then you begin to ask them, oh, well, have, are you a carpenter by trade? Or are you a contractor by trade? Uh, or were permits required when you did this kind of work? That lets the selling agent prepare buyers that have, that come in. And he can say, listen, the seller put in the fireplace himself. Well, buyer's agent, ask about that. Why was he? We have a good add-on question to this that came from one of our students. Um, they are listing or they have listed a builder's model. And you know, builders, when they do the model, they convert the garage. The builder did not convert it back to a garage because the buyers love the model with the converted <laughs> garage. So um, anything different from what we've talked about that you would add to that particular situation? I sure would. And I've appraised a house like that. I've appraised a model home where the um, garage wasn't converted back. The problem gets to be when that house sold, then the driveway did not um, lead into the um, house adequately and, and it became a market resistance to that. The other thing that happens is the homeowners association may still say it cannot be a, um, a, a add on. And so when the property sold, maybe six years after um, the original buyer had it, um, there was market resistance. And so it was easy to go in and see that um, sales price or list price was one number, but the offers that came in on the property were much less. So because they did want a garage, the new owners wanted a garage and, and just did not like the appeal of having living space and having to get out and carry groceries in without that garage. Well, for this agent right now that has the listing, my advice to them would be go straight to the HOA deed restrictions <laughs> and <laughs> make sure that you read them and then have the builder convert it back to a garage if in fact it's in violation because we know sometimes they will give a period of time for a builder to go ahead and have that model be a conversion for a sales office. That's correct. And uh, then they have to put it back. So, and we also got some great comments on how much they have enjoyed this this morning. Oh, good. And it's been very informative. And um, I absolutely know that it has been informative because Jasmine is so experienced and she most definitely has helped our new and experienced agents with day-to-day -day situations that can happen. So just on a really short little note, if someone listening says, gosh, I'd like to be an appraiser, <laughs> can you tell them what the uh, requirements are right now? Well, um, right now you do need to have a degree if you're going to come into the appraisal industry or uh, an associate's degree. Um, so 
that has to be um, factored in, but we've got classes that you take uh, in order to uh, become a trainee. And then you're going to walk with a seasoned appraiser um, so that you get trained on all of the ethics and how to handle uh, the complicated uh, properties in the market. Uh, and you will walk with him so until you've got 2,500 hours of experience. Um, and then you can finish up your classes and take an exam um, that we prepare you to, to take. Our appraisers do very well uh, when they go to their state exam. And, um, and that's how you get in the uh, appraisal industry. And don't let that associate's degree scare you, scare you off. Um, if you don't have a degree, because uh, believe it or not, the AQB changed those rules, not for right now. Jasmine's telling you how it is right, right now. now. Uh, but it looks like that come the first of the year, there will be additional educational hours that you can take. And my personal opinion on that is, as I've mentioned many times, I think they recognize that we don't have enough appraisers. And that restriction of having to have a degree, it's like, okay, I think and believe they listened to that and said, well, all right, down the road, which I think is the beginning of next year, if not late fall this year, they will allow you to take additional education hours in order to start out. And, you know, none of our students that have gone through our program at Champions have had a problem finding an appraiser to work under with their log. But you do have to have, as you said, the experience yes. hours as well. And we have that great prep that Jasmine talked about. Right. So, And the other thing about uh, being an appraiser, the, um, the reason that you need the experience is because when you think about all the kinds of constructions that we have, especially in the residential market, when you think about um, manufactured housing and townhouses and condos and residential freestanding houses and luxury homes. Um, the appraiser has to be versed in, in a wide, oh, variety. wide variety. So mm -hmm. it does take a little while to make mm -hmm. sure that you have the kind of experience mm -hmm. that's needed to, um, to take care of uh, what the lender requires. And the other thing is we protect the consumer because nobody wants to pay more for a home than it's really worth. And no seller wants to sell a house and get less than they deserve. Do you want to know what successful people in real estate do every day? Learn the how, the why, the what of their daily success by tuning in to our Champion School of Real Estate podcast every week. Every Wednesday, we will add new insights to elevate your entrepreneurship and help you make new breakthroughs in your business. You can do it. We can help at Champion School of Real Estate Weekly Podcast.